We are delighted to be joined by New Testament professor and author, Dr. Guy Walters. Hello and welcome to Exposit the Word, Guy. Thank you, David. It is great to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you, Guy. Before we get stuck into the questions, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you. So I serve at Reformed Theological Seminary at our Jackson campus. I've been on faculty here. This is my 14th year. Uh, prior to coming to RTS, I taught at a local Christian college, Bellhaven, in the Bible department for five years. Mm. I also serve as a minister in the Presbyterian Church in America and enjoy uh, preaching and serving area congregations. Uh, my wife and I have been married. It'll be 24 years this spring. We have three children ranging from university down to uh, uh, junior high over here. Ah, oh, brilliant. And how did you become a Christian? Well, I was raised in the church, but I didn't hear the gospel until I was in college. Yeah. And I had uh, friends who uh, were very patient with me <laughs> and uh, took me through uh, the scriptures over a long period of time. Uh, my, my now wife had the very same experience. She was raised in a a similar setting she had Christian friends who made her a project as well yeah. and we were worshiping at a, a Bible believing Presbyterian Church near our home in Washington DC and uh, we both believe we were converted under that sermon the lights came on and um, God is gracious we're excited to have you here today to talk about your new book, For the Mouth of the Lord Has Spoken, The Doctrine of Scripture, published by um, Christian Focus. Just tell us a little bit about, uh, give us an overview of the book and tell us how you come to write it. Well, I was invited by the series editors, uh, Matthew Barrett and John Fesco, and um, uh, John is a friend and, and Matthew is becoming a friend. And I was honored to be asked, and uh, when they gave me this opportunity, I, I leapt at it. Mm. Uh, I've, I work in, in New Testament, I teach New Testament, but you're never far from the, an understanding of, of what the Scripture is, the doctrine of Scripture. Yeah. And of course, one of the uh, great contributions to the doctrine of Scripture has come from the pen of B.B. Warfield uh, at Old Princeton, who taught both New Testament and theology, mm -hmm. and whose articulation, whose defense of the doctrine uh, reflects very careful handling of the Scripture. That's something uh, that I admire, aspire to, uh, I doubt I achieve, but he's very much a model, I mm -hmm. think, for thinking through these very important questions about what the Bible is. Yeah. You start off at the beginning of your book and you ask the question, what is the Bible and why is it important? Answer that question for us, Guy. Well, you know, answer this question well and so many things will fall in place. Answer this question poorly and uh, you, you will do uncalculable damage yeah. uh, to, to your understanding of, of what Christianity is. Mm. So that's it's such an important question to, to ask and to answer correctly. And I think Christians across the board historically have said, well, the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, and what do we mean by that? Well, we wouldn't know anything about God except he reveals himself to us. Mm. And he reveals himself to us in the ways that are suitable to us as his image bearers. He speaks to us. 
and we have uh, supremely his self-revelation in the scripture. That's the fullest, clearest, most ample uh, self-revelation of God in our possession. So when, when we come to the Bible, we are coming to God's own speech, and uh, we're not coming to a, a book that is a, a mere human composition. This is not the, the response of human beings mm-hmm. to uh, the, an experience of God that they've had. This is God's own word given through human authors. And once we start with that basic conviction, that's going to open up so much of the scripture to us. Yeah. What has God designed for the Bible to do in our lives? Well, the two main areas, and and they're brought out in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, It's telling in in a number of ways, this verse, uh, Paul uh, we can put it this way, he, he stumbles into the statement. He's, he's not advancing an argument for uh, the, uh, the nature of Scripture, the purpose of Scripture. He's, he's just reminding Timothy of what he's known all along. Mm. And he tells Timothy that Scripture is God-breathed, uh, so it is, it is fully divine. And then he goes on to say, now this is why God has given us the Scripture. This is what it's profitable for. And he proceeds to tell us it's, it's profitable for doctrine and for correction, for uh, training in righteousness, that the, the man of God may be equipped, yeah. competent, yeah. And, and perfect for every good work. So God gives us the scripture to teach us what to believe. He gives us the scripture to show us how he would have us to live to his glory. So the, the scripture is fundamentally practical in its orientation. Mm. And of course, the most important thing that the scripture does is that it reveals to us that we are sinners, that we're in need of a savior, and that God has provided this faith, savior, his only son, Jesus Christ, and that any who believes in the son has life. Mm. And so that's what this Bible is inviting all of its readers to. This relationship with Jesus Christ, whom we trust for salvation and by whose grace we live to the glory of God. Yeah. You've said before that to arrive at a proper understanding of special revelation, we need to have a grasp of natural revelation. Before you explain why, just define what natural and special revelation is. Of course. Natural revelation or general revelation, this is the revelation that God makes of himself in the world around us, Mm. including in our own persons. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Paul tells us in the first chapter of Romans that God has revealed himself, his wisdom, his power, his goodness through the things that are made. And so before we come to the Bible, every one of us as a human being is aware of God knows God through his self-revelation in the creation. Of course, the problem is that as sinners, Paul says, we suppress the truth Mm -hmm. in unrighteousness. And beyond that, God doesn't reveal the way to salvation through nature. So you can learn of the identity of God 
you can learn true things about this God and something of yourself, but the way of salvation is not going to be made known through general revelation. Mm -hmm. And that's why special revelation becomes so important, because it's in special revelation that God has most fully revealed himself. It's here we learn of God as triune, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Mm -hmm. And it's in the scripture that we learn of God's purposes of salvation and what he has done in history to save sinners mm -hmm. so that sinners who, who know God through the things that are made can know this God as Savior as he's revealed himself through special revelation through Scripture. What does it mean when we say the Bible is inspired? And what does that process look like, bearing in mind the humanity of the human authors? So when we say the Bible is inspired, that, that goes back to the verse that I was referencing a moment ago, 2 Timothy 3.16. And inspired translates a Greek word that Paul uses. It's only used once in the New Testament in that verse, and the word means God-breathed. Yeah. Uh, scripture is breathed out by God. So when we say that Scripture is inspired, we need to be clear, we're not saying that it's inspiring. Uh, now, certainly Scripture is inspiring, but that's not what we mean yeah. when we speak of its inspiration. It's not like uh, a sunset or a symphony. That, that has some effect on us. We're talking about what the Bible actually is. And we're not saying that, the, that God found a book and said, oh, this looks pretty good. I think I'll, I'll adopt it yeah. as my own, make yeah. it my word. <laughs> yeah. But God himself is the author of Scripture from start to finish and down to the very words. And God was pleased to write each book of the Bible by human authors. And so these human authors were prepared by God in his providence to be just the author he wanted to be. And inspiration uh, carries the idea that, that God the Spirit was superintending, overseeing the whole writing process from start to finish, so that when those human authors, when a Paul wrote Romans, or when uh, Moses wrote Deuteronomy, the finished product was 100% the work of Moses or of Paul, and it is 100% the work of God. Yeah. And so it is fully human, it is fully divine. And so that's what we mean when we speak of the inspiration of Scripture. Yeah. How did the human authors regard their own writing? Well, some authors, I think, were certainly conscious of what they were about. Uh, you, you have, for instance, Paul writing through his letters. He is conscious of his authority. He tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14 that, look, what I'm writing to you is a command of the Lord. So he knew he was an apostle. He was writing uh, with the authority of Jesus Christ. Mm. The prophets certainly knew that they were commissioned by God, that they were speaking the words of God. Think of how often we read in the prophets, thus says the Lord. Mm -hmm. So they, they were very much aware 
of, of what they were about. But we, we can go through each of the different books of the Bible, historical books or certain letters, and to whatever degree the human authors were conscious of what they were doing, the, the important point is that what they were producing and what God intended for them to produce uh, is, in fact, the Word of God. Yeah. And, and that's the, the product. What they have given us, what God has given us, is his own word. When describing the Bible, we use words like inerrant and infallible. What do these mean and why is it important that we hold on to these positions? Well, those are very important words. And uh, infallible means that the uh, Bible, when we speak of the Bible as infallible, that it is not going to, it's, it is not liable to err. And so it is entirely trustworthy. Mm. When we speak of the Bible as inerrant, we mean that the Bible is entirely without error. It contains no errors. Mm. Sometimes people try to uh, put these two words as um, alternatives. Cho you, you choose one or the other. But, but in reality, they're both good words if they're properly defined and they both capture what the Bible is and that is it is a book that is entirely true it is without error it will never deceive for the simple reason that its author its divine author God is truth himself and therefore the Bible has all the properties of its author yeah. namely it will never deceive and it is entirely true. Yeah. What are some of the most common objections you have heard regarding the, the inerrancy of Scripture, and how do you answer those, Guy? Well, they, they range. Uh, sometimes the objections uh, are that, well, aren't there uh, errors, historical errors, scientific errors in the Bible? And there have been some very fine works that Christians have produced over the centuries addressing these and we couldn't possibly begin to address even a fraction of them yeah. but I think the important thing to remember when we take up these allegations of error let's say factual error of, of an historical or, or scientific character we have to remember in the first place that we're, we're dealing with an allegation and that at no point has an error been proven in the scripture. Mm. And for the allegation to hold, that allegation has to show that that error is necessarily in the text of scripture mm. or that that error uh, alleged means that something scripture says is completely incompatible with some known fact of the world. And that has never been shown. Very often, allegations of errors come out of misinterpretations of the Scripture. Or they show, well, it's possible to say there's an error here, but that, that doesn't, it's not required. There are any number of scenarios or interpretations that would not require an error if yeah. we're comparing something in Scripture to something outside of Scripture, yeah. or two statements of Scripture next to one another. So I think for, for Christians, 
that's the really important thing that there is no proven necessary error yeah. within scripture or scripture compared to some known fact of the world yeah what role does the holy spirit play in our reading and understanding of scripture well, I think uh, your question is so important because the Holy Spirit does play a role in our reading and understanding of Scripture. And it's important that we understand what that role is and is not. For one thing, we, we don't look to the Holy Spirit to, to whisper the meaning or interpretation of Scripture as we're reading it. It's, it's not a, an audible role. At the same time, we recognize when we come to the Scripture that the, the Spirit is the Scripture's author. He wrote this book. And so we properly ask him to help us to understand it. We, we used a word a moment ago to speak of the production of Scripture, mm -hmm. inspiration. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the Spirit's ongoing ministry in the church— for the understanding of Scripture. A word that's used is illumination, which is to, to cast light upon. And what we're asking the Spirit to do is to shed light on our minds so that we would understand the book of Scripture the way it's intended to, that we would put our trust in Christ and that we would obey Christ as he's revealed in the Scripture. Yeah. So we're, we're, we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit, but we're not looking to him to say anything in addition to Scripture. Uh, we're, we're not saying that someone who uh, prays earnestly is going to be guaranteed a proper interpretation of Scripture. You have to use all the helps and use the minds that, that God has given us and all the resources that, that God has raised up in the church mm -hmm. in his providence. But the Spirit does play that important role, that we would come to the Scripture, that it would not be a, a bare intellectual exercise, but that uh, light would be shone on our minds so that we can trust and obey the way that, that God would have us. Yeah, brilliant. What would you say to someone that is casual regarding reading their Bible because they feel that God speaks to them in a personal relationship and that they don't need to? Well, I would... I would start by saying that uh, it, it is, they're absolutely right to say that God speaks to us and that that is the, the core of our relationship with him. Where I would go on and, and challenge them is to say that God doesn't speak to us verbally or audibly or through suggestions or hints or impulses or uh, all the sorts of ways that people sometimes uh, think of God speaking to people today. Yeah. He has spoken to us in Scripture. And every time we open up the Bible, that we are hearing God's voice as we read those words. Yeah. And <clears throat> we read those words submissive uh, to God. We're praying for his help. We are looking for promises to believe. We are looking for commands to follow, for encouragements and motivations uh, to, to glorify, to serve the Lord in this world. So this is a, a very uh, critical part of our ongoing relationship with God, our discipleship. 
But the important thing is, is that God takes us to the scripture and he doesn't send us outside the scripture. Yeah. So we, we do want to hear the voice of God. And what God has said is you will hear my voice as you read my words in scripture. Yeah. And I'm not sending you anywhere else for it. Yeah. What does it mean when we say that scripture is sufficient? Good. Um, so when we say that scripture is sufficient, we mean that the scripture does everything that God intended for it. And so it answers the purposes for which it was written. And it's important to put it that way because we're not claiming that scripture can be or do something that God never intended for it mm. to be or to do. Mm. So God, for instance, never intended uh, the scripture to be uh, an, an exhaustive historical record. It's, it's selective. There, there's, you read the, the accounts of the kings of Israel or of the ministry of Jesus. There, there are all sorts of things that we don't know. Mm. But that's okay because God didn't intend to share those things with us. And we, we don't need to know them in order to trust and to obey. Those are the main purposes of Scripture. Uh, by the same token, uh, God calls us to make application of Scripture to our own lives. And that work of application is a work he gives to us by, by the help of the Spirit, of course. So we have to read the Scripture. We have to think through the Scripture. We have to connect the Scripture with our circumstances and our situation. And then we have to respond in light of it. Uh, my name and your name is, is not written uh, in, in letters anywhere in the Scripture. I, I have to go and make application to myself. And, yeah. and that's, that's what God wants. Yeah. So when we speak of sufficiency, we're saying that the Bible gives us everything that we need in order to, to trust him and to obey him. And we don't go elsewhere for that. Yeah. How is it possible for two spirit-filled believers to come to two opposing understandings of the same scripture? Mm. Well, it, it does happen. <laughs> You're <laughs> absolutely right. Yeah. And I, I think there, there are lots of reasons why that could be. Um, for, for one thing, we are, we're all learning uh, as disciples. That's what it means to be a Christian. We are disciples. We are learners in the yeah. school of Christ. Iron sharpens iron. And sometimes as two believers meet one another and they present different understandings of, of scriptures, that becomes the occasion for them to study the scripture together. Yeah. And God brings a, a wonderful harmony or unity out of that around the, the meaning of Scripture. Uh, we're, we also have to be very mindful that sin remains in the best of believers, and sin impairs our reading and application of Scripture, mm -hmm. and that sin is responsible for errors mm -hmm. of interpretation of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that if I disagree with my brother that on a matter of interpretation of scripture that the only explanation is well he's in sin but i do think we have to take that into account yeah uh, god wants us to be studying the scripture together and it's as we do so 
that that helps to refine us and come to a clearer understanding of the meaning of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And I think you could look through 2,000 years of church history and see how God has been doing that in the life of the church over and over. Yeah. How can we be sure that the right books ended up in the canon of Scripture? Well, I think that's such an important question, uh, partly because that's one of the objections that uh, unbelief often raises against the Bible. And I think we can answer that in along two lines. One is to look at the books of the Old Testament, and when we come to the teaching of Jesus, to the teaching of the apostles, what we find is that for all of their disagreements with uh, their fellow Jews in the first century, there was never any disagreement about the boundaries of the canon. Mm. There was widespread agreement that the 39 books of the Old Testament were the Word of God. And so those books had been uh, received and recognized as God's Word, and there really wasn't any dispute. Mm. Now, when we turn to the books of the New Testament, what we find is that the books of the New Testament were uh, written, they were being circulated, they were being collected. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that already in his lifetime, Paul's letters were being collected and circulated around the church. And we know from church history that there were books that claimed to be part of the Word of God, yeah. but the church gave them a careful look and said, no, these, these don't have uh, the marks of Scripture. And so the church was very conscious that there were true books and there were false books. Mm -hmm. There was a sifting process, and the main criterion was that the church received those books that the apostles had imposed upon the church, that the apostles had handed down to the church. And, and that was the, the main mark that a book was to be included in the canon of Scripture under the New Testament, that the apostles had delivered it to the church. Yeah. And when you look at the uh, evidence from the first few centuries of the church, you, you see some pretty vigorous discussions, which shows us how seriously the church took this work. But you also see over time a consensus growing across time and space so that in the end there really was no disagreement that mm -hmm. the 27 books of the New Testament and only those books uh, of the New Testament were the Word of God. Guy, I will probably never speak to somebody more qualified to answer this question. Who wrote Hebrews? <laughs> <laughs> well, I that question, as you know, is, has been asked for centuries yeah. and there have been so many um, proposals, and, and there have been some really good proposals, some suggestions, and um, I, I'm, I'm somewhat partial to, to Luther. I think he proposed Apollos. Of course, the problem is I think Luther was the first one to propose Apollos. Yeah, yeah. And so I come back to one of the very first people in the history of the church to ask and answer that question, the third century church father origin and his answer is 
God only knows. Yeah. And I think that's probably where we have to leave it yeah. until we get glory. Yeah. <laughs> How do you define the clarity of Scripture? And what role did this play in the Reformation? Mm. Well, clarity, to, to go back to an earlier scenario you were describing, doesn't mean that we all see perfectly clearly uh, what, what is in Scripture at once. Mm. Uh, of course, there's going to be disagreements that have to be worked through. <clears throat> but when we say the Scripture is clear, we're saying that in some place or another, the things that are critical for salvation, faith and obedience, are revealed such that a reader, with, with the helps available to readers of the Scripture, especially the teaching and preaching ministry of the Church, mm-hmm. can come to an understanding of what the Scripture is actually teaching. That became important at the time of the Reformation because uh, Rome argued, and in fact continues to argue, not only that the Scripture is insufficient, meaning we need to supplement the teaching of Scripture with traditions that are uh, handed down to us, by the church and imposed upon us by the church's authority. But Rome also argued that the scripture is fundamentally unclear in in the very matter that we just addressed, those core matters. And so you need the church to tell you what the scripture says. And this was a, a point that Luther broke from very early on when he was early in his uh, reforming ministry uh, told to recant and and his reply was in effect I, I cannot I will not recant unless I'm shown unless I'm persuaded that what I'm teaching is out of accord with out of step with the Word of God and Luther was saying something very important he he was not going to submit to the teaching authority of the church mm-hmm as though the church had authority to tell him what the scripture said. Mm -hmm. He he says, look, you show me where I'm wrong, and I'll recant. But but he was stressing that point that scripture on point of the gospel was basically clear, and he wouldn't yield that point to any authority. Yeah, yeah. What are some good rules of hermeneutics for the listeners to consider when reading their Bibles? Well, I think... Keeping in mind, when we are thinking about the clarity of Scripture, we're not saying that all parts of Scripture are equally clear. There, there are some, some difficult passages. The Apostle Peter tells us that there are some things in Paul that are difficult to understand. Not all things, but some things. And so... To take an example, I don't know if this is what Peter was thinking of or not, Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 of some being baptized for the dead. Yeah. And a lot of discussion about what that is. And that's okay for Christians to have some disagreement about or to have some uncertainty about. Uh, partly because the, the main thing 
in Scripture, the main things, what God has revealed of himself and of salvation, those things are clear. But I think when we encounter those difficult passages, one of the most important principles is that the passages that are less clear have to be interpreted by the passages that are more clear. And so we read Scripture in light of Scripture. If something is unclear, we take it to another part of Scripture that is clearer. Mm -hmm. And we can do that because God is the author of the whole Scripture. So we we are simply taking what God said over here and comparing it with what God said over there and uh, coming to some judgment as as to to what the meaning of this more more difficult passage may be yeah when we read scripture what are some good ways for us to understand what we can and should apply to us today and what bits were specific for the recipients of the scripture back then Hmm. well the, the principle has been articulated this way that the scripture was not written to you but it was written for you yeah and by that we are not the original recipients of scripture we are not israel in the wilderness we are not the remnant uh, in in babylon we are not the church in corinth so we have to recognize <clears throat> that there is some distance between us and the original audience and we have to take care when we make application uh, to take a point, I think all Christians would, would be in agreement on uh, the, the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. Yeah. We no longer perform those because living in the fullness of time, Christ has come. The shadows have given way to the substance, to the reality. Christ has offered himself once for all as sacrifice for sin, and we put our trust in him. We We don't need animal sacrifices they they don't perform the the answer the purpose for which they were originally intended mm-hmm. at the same time we recognize as we read the scripture that as god is speaking to israel in the wilderness or the remnant in babylon or the church in corinth that he's not just speaking uh, to them that this word is for his church in every age that's yeah. why he is written it and preserved it and passed it down and so we see the new testament writers doing this all of the time when they go back to the old testament and they quote the old testament and apply the old testament to the church and particularly to to show us what it is that we're to believe about god his promises is his commands Mm -hmm. and the way in which god would have us to live So we learn uh, richly about God and about his ways with us and his purposes for us in Genesis as well as in Romans. So while those books were not not written to us, they were written for us. Yeah, so good. So good. In your new book, you take some time to write about Cole Barr. Why did you decide to do that? Well... Bart is and and remains uh, one of the most influential theologians in recent memory. He uh, wrote uh, within uh, broadly the the Reformed tradition, and he he was someone who 
raised some incisive criticisms against the, the liberalism that, that dominated the churches in Europe yeah. at the time, in the early to mid-20th century. And he was someone who intended, who would say, I'm, I'm trying to, to recover the, the Reformed tradition, and, and quotes Calvin and earlier Reformed writers uh, extensively. Mm. But in, in the course of that, he, he made a number of statements about revelation, about scripture, that in, in my judgment part ways with what Calvin and the Reformed tradition have affirmed about yeah. scripture. Yeah. And so the chapter on Karl Barth is intended to give a, a brief survey of what Barth says about revelation about the Word of God, about the Bible, and to, to trace those areas where uh, those who would affirm uh, that what we've been arguing the Bible teaches about itself would, would have to part ways yeah. uh, with Bart on those points. Yeah. If you could go to dinner with one of the human authors of Scripture, who would you choose to go with and what would you ask them? Oh, boy. Well, it's, <laughs> it, it's tempting... David, to uh, invite the author uh, to the epistle of the Hebrews just, just to see who shows up at the table. Yeah. <laughs> history. Um, but, I, you know, I think uh, that, that is it's such a, a, a difficult question. Um, but because I've, I've done a lot of, of teaching and writing about the Apostle Paul, uh, I've, I've so many questions about his life, about his ministry. I'd love to sit him down just for a two-hour meal and, and just throw question after question to him. Yeah. One thing I appreciate, I mean, about all the biblical writers, but especially about Paul, is uh, he was a pastor, and he loved his churches. He was ministering to his churches, and I think we, we stand to learn a lot from him as, as from others, of course, uh, in other writers in the Scripture. But, but Paul, is, I've noticed in my work, uh, over the years, uh, I've really been struck with, with that deep love for the church. Yeah, fantastic. What have been some of the most helpful resources to help you grow in your faith over the years? Hmm. Well, I come back again and again to the, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the shorter and larger catechisms. Uh, pound for pound, inch for inch, they put biblical truth uh, clearly succinctly, pastorally. Uh, they don't address everything, but they address a lot of things. Yeah. And I'm impressed by the wisdom, uh, by the, the, the pastoral tone, uh, the way in which it's uh, reaching out across the centuries to pull in the best of what our, our Christian ancestors have seen from Scripture, but also where necessary uh, setting up fences, uh, saying we're not going to go there and we're not going to go over there. Uh, they're they're very conscious of uh, errors that have taken root in the church and, and the deep uh, practical effects that they can have to the detriment of the church. Before we let you go, Guy, I've got to ask you about another project. We're recording this in the beginning of November. And amazingly, you've got two books that have just come out at the same time. Just quickly touch on the other book that's just been released as well. Oh, thank you. 
So <clears throat> I had the privilege of serving as, as the main editor for a compilation of essays on covenant theology. The contributors are my colleagues at Reformed Theological Seminary across our campuses. And we, we have somewhere in the neighborhood of a little over three dozen chapters addressing covenant theology uh, from the vantage point of biblical theology, systematic theology, church history, practical theology. Uh, we really tried to give uh, a wide-ranging survey of covenant theology. Um, there, there are many fine resources out there on covenant theology, but we thought that this was going to help uh, fill a need uh, for the church to uh, have access to the wide uh, range of resources that are out there in the church and, and put them within reach yeah. of, of our readers. I'm really encouraged uh, by the fine work my colleagues did. Crossway, I think, has done a great job yeah. putting this project together. And I'm, I'm really hoping and I'm praying that this work will be a help to the church to grow and in one of the most important teachings of Scripture, and that is the, the covenants that God makes with us to administer his promises of salvation. So good. We will put a link to both of those books in the descriptions below. So um, really recommend that you pick up this book for the, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken, the doctrine of scripture. Amazing. I'm looking forward to checking out the book from Crossway as well, Guy. In case any of the listeners want to reach out to you, is there any way of getting in touch with you, Guy? Absolutely. So I have an email address uh, that can be found on the, the website, of, of RTS, uh, but I'll, I'll give it to your, your listeners here. It's sure. gwaters at rts.edu, and uh, would, would love to hear uh, from, from your listeners, answer any questions that I can, and um, uh, re receive, uh, receive a word from them. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Guy, thank you so much for your time. I've absolutely loved speaking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've really appreciated it.